You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Pray together, Father, Son, and Spirit, we do praise you for your rich grace that has been poured out on us in and through Jesus, the one whom you reveal, through whom you reveal yourself and your mercy and your kindness to us. We thank you that your word um, reveals your son to us and that the whole Bible is the story that points to him. We pray today that as we turn our hearts to your word, that you would open it up to us, that we would not be those who just walk away unchanged, but that we would respond to your word with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Please be seated. Hey, friends, it's good to see you. I'm Corey. I'm the lead pastor here and want to welcome you if you're in the room or if you're down in the Fellowship Hall or if you're online. We're really grateful that you're with us here today. Last week, we started a new series that we're going to be looking at this fall on First and Second Samuel uh, that we're calling Longing for the True King. We're looking at these stories. These are great stories, uh, exciting stories, some epic stories that we'll be looking at together this fall. But What I said last week and what I want to say again now is the reason we do this um, isn't just because uh, there's some fascinating stuff in the Old Testament, but because we actually believe that this is our story. Uh, This is the story of the people of God, and that when we look at these stories, we see ourselves. We see the story of rebellion. uh, We see the story of redemption. We see the story of devastation. We see the story of hope. And by looking at it, not only can we understand ourselves better, but mostly we can know the God who loves us and never breaks his promises to us or to the world. So today, um, we are looking at the story of the first installation of the first monarch of Israel. Um, and Timothy Wynn is going to read to us from 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 17 through 27. So hear God's word. This is a scripture reading from 1 Samuel 10, verses 17 to 27. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, no, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, Yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king! Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here's a, here's a fun game you could play uh, during lunch today, especially for you kids. Um, try to think of as many pairs of things that either cannot or should not ever go together. For example, um, orange juice and toothpaste. I always thought that was terrible. You know, you brush your teeth right after you drink some orange juice. Or peanut butter and mayo. Gross. Got one, one taker here. We'll talk, we'll talk to him later. Um, if you're a scientist, you might say matter and antimatter. Never do it. You know, never put them together. If Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, says um, fruit, it's really good. Cake is really great. But put them together, fruitcake, horrible. You know, <laughs> should never, ever happen. Um, you know, it's funny because in the world of theology, there has been a long debate literally for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years about two things that seemingly cannot and do not go together. And those two things, I'm going to be a little nerdy with you for just for a few moments today, those two things are human freedom and divine sovereignty, okay? Human freedom is basically the capacity of human beings to choose their own way and go the direction that they want to go. Divine sovereignty is the power of God to control the course of human history and even the course of every human life. And the debate has raged for over a millennia because folks say, well, uh, if humans are truly free, then God must not be all-powerful. And if God is truly all-powerful, then humans must not truly be free. And literally, whole Camps of theology and denominations have been built around one over the other. You've got the Arminians versus the Reformed. You've got Free Will Baptists versus Reformed Baptists. You've got Methodists versus Presbyterians. And this debate has raged for centuries. Now, most of you are thinking, why do I care? Um, Here's why. First of all, because this is actually a tension that we see in Scripture all the time. And we see it prominently in our story today. And so we want to look at it. We want to look at what it tells us about the human story and about God. But the second and really important pastoral reason today is because this tension between human freedom and divine sovereignty is actually important for us to consider both as a warning and a comfort. A warning to consider the propensity of our own hearts towards rebellion and a comfort to consider the incredible totality of God's power to bring about his saving purposes. So if you want, if you're the kind of person that likes a dominant thought, uh, uh, here it is. Here's the big idea for today. We are indeed free, but our freedom always leads to slavery. And God is indeed sovereign, but his power always leads to salvation and hope. Okay? Y'all with me, class? It's hard to know if you are. I can't see most of your faces. So let's look at the first side of the coin. Let's look at human freedom, which is really a warning. There's a big warning in this text when it comes to human freedom. Let's remember where we were last week. And if you weren't here last week, um, I'll just sort of try to catch you up real quick. So the people demanded a king, and this was not a good thing, right? This was driven out of their desire to be like all the other nations around them. They didn't want to be God's special people anymore. Now, up to this point in the history of Israel, God had been their king. God had been their ruler. And this had worked out really well. 
because God had saved them again and again. God saved them out of Egypt. He conquered the Egyptian oppressors. He brought them to the Red Sea. He brought them in the promised land. And when they got to the promised land and there were all the uh, threats in the promised land, God raised up judge after judge to save them there. So this had worked out well for them. And in our passage, God reminds them of all of this. So he says in verse 18 in our text, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you, Israel, out of Egypt. And I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. He's reminding them of his past faithfulness. And he's saying, if you could count on me back then, you can count on me now. These Philistines that are threatening you are no more dangerous than the Egyptians that were, that were threatening you back in Egypt. So continue to look to me, trust me that I will be your savior and king. But as we saw last week, the people were like, nope, we want a king. We want a king. We want to be like the nations. We want to be saved by a human king. They don't trust God. That's what their demand for a king reveals. And despite the fact that God and Samuel tell them this is a really bad idea, they insist, chapter 8, verse 22, we want a king. Okay, that's where we are in our chapter today, chapter 10. We see the story continue. So Samuel calls all of Israel together. And this is now a very auspicious occasion because it is the inauguration of the first monarch in the history of Israel. Y'all, inaugurations of kings is a really big deal. Eventually, eventually Queen Elizabeth will die um, and they'll inaugurate her son, Charles, as the king. And that will be a really big deal. I mean, millions and millions and millions of people will tune in from all over the world to see this pomp and circumstance, to grieve the death of Elizabeth, to celebrate the inauguration of this new king. It will be the event of the year. Inaugurations of kings is a really big, really special deal, right? Which is what makes this particular inauguration feel so awkward. Because Samuel gets up to kick off this auspicious ceremony, and he says, this is the worst idea ever. It's, he's such, this guy is such a downer. Um, just imagine at your graduation or at your wedding, this very special affair, and the officiant stands up to welcome all the people, and the officiant says, welcome, everyone. This is a horrible idea, so let's get on with it, I guess. <laughs> that's, the, that's the tone of this scene. Samuel is deeply grieved by what's about to happen because he knows that God is grieved. Look at verse 19. How'd you like this to be the first thing that he says at your inauguration? But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, no, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. Basically Samuel's saying, you guys have rejected the one who loves you. This is what you wanted. So let's get on with it. It's sad. And this tells us a lot about human freedom and the way that God responds to human freedom. When human beings are free, and this is going to be hard for some of you to hear, and you probably will disagree with me, some of you, and that's fine. I mean, we don't have to agree about everything. But when human beings are free, and we see this from the beginning, Genesis 3, when human beings are free, we tend to use our freedom to reject the God who made and loves us. This is the propensity of the human heart. And when that happens, as we see in that text, here's what's crazy and a little scary. God lets it happen. 
So we see it happening here. God concedes to his people's demand for a king. He allows his people to reject him. He had every right to say, hey, I'm God. I have all authority here. No, you may not have a king, but he allows it. He permits it. He makes a concession for it. He doesn't stop them from rejecting him. And he won't stop us either. That's the warning of this text, that he gives us freedom to go our own way, to reject his love, to rebel against his rule. We do this usually because we think it will lead to greater freedom and independence, right? God's people thought that rejecting God as their ruler and getting a human king would lead them to greater freedom and prosperity, right? And then we talked about this last week. That's why we do this. You know, when we feel scared or threatened or out of control, we tend to, our instinct is to take our lives into our own hands, to try to gain more control over our lives because we think this will lead to greater freedom in life. But instead, as we'll see in this story, it does not. It leads not to provision, but to deprivation. It leads not to fullness, but to emptiness. It does not lead to freedom. It leads to exile and eventual slavery. That's always the direction that human freedom leads. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, I think it's The Problem of Pain, says this. This is a very sobering quote. He says, the greatest monument to human freedom is hell. Hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. Think about that. Hell is our choosing, our demand to live without God extended for all eternity. And God allows it. He gives us the freedom to follow our demands to their inevitable end. This is the warning in this text. You know, if you, if, if you read the Bible, if you read a story like this and you're just like, man, those people are so dumb. I'm glad I'm not like that. You're not reading the text carefully. <laughs> Because what the, what the Bible, the Bible is given to us for our encouragement, warning, and edification. You know, the Spirit wants you to be read by the text as you read the text. That's what the Bible's for. And so as we read it, we should see ourselves in this. You should, you know, in all of our hearts, y'all, there's a little voice that says to God, leave me alone. Just leave me alone. Like, I don't, I don't want you to lead me. I don't trust you to lead me. I want to run my own life and do my own thing. It's crazy. It's like a fish saying, I am sick of this restrictive water and I'm going to be free on that land. We know where that leads. And yet this is what we do. We say to God, leave me alone. And here's what we see in the story. God says, okay, okay. You want to live your life without me? Okay. And I want to be clear. God doesn't say okay because he doesn't care. He cares deeply. When God's people, when anyone rejects him, God's heart is broken. God's heart is grieved. God loves all people, desires all people to come to a saving knowledge of the truth. But God is also meek enough. God is humble enough. God is non-coercive enough that if we demand a life without him and refuse to trust and seek to be rulers of our own lives, God allows us to go our way. So that's the warning of this text. And the invitation is for you to see that propensity in your own heart. Can you identify the little voice inside of you that says, don't trust him? 
He doesn't really care. He's not going to provide. He's not going to come through. He can't be relied on. Can you hear that voice operating in your own soul? God will not coerce your love. That's the lesson of this text. As Jesus said, God is like a father who lets his own son take his inheritance and go to the far country. God lets us, even as that way leads to death. So I'm sorry to start in this sort of heavy place, but this is a sad moment in the life of God's people. But there's a comfort. There's a great comfort here also in this text. And the comfort is in God's sovereignty. Because what we see here is that God does allow human beings to go our own way. And that certainly does explain, doesn't it, the way that the world is today? How messed up we have made the world We have a bunch of people insisting on their own way, rejecting God's rule and direction, and God allows it. That explains a lot, doesn't it? But you might ask, well, where does that leave us? If the whole history of the world is human beings taking matters in their own hands and rejecting God's rulership and direction, and God allows it to happen, then the only inevitable end is darkness, destruction, and death. Well, that's not good news. But here's the good news. God loves us. And he loves the world and he is all powerful and he is able to even work out our rejection of him for our good and for our salvation. We see this play out in our story. The way the story is told is meant to highlight the unseen hand of God at work behind the tragedy of this story. And it's done with a whole lot of ancient Middle Eastern humor thrown in. Okay? So look, in chapter 9 which we skipped over, but you can go back and read it later. In chapter 9, the first half of chapter 10, here's a little bit about what happens, okay? We're introduced to a young man named Saul, and Saul's dad is a farmer, and Saul helps him out on the farm, and one day, Saul's dad happens to lose all his donkeys. I hate it when that happens, right? Just lose my donkey. My donkeys are right here, and they're gone. I don't know where they are. So he loses all of his donkeys, and so Saul and his servant go out to find the donkeys. And they're just wandering around. They have no idea where the donkeys went. Well, they just happen to wander in this town where the prophet Samuel just so happens to live. And so the servant says, hey, man, I heard that there's this prophet here. Maybe he can help us find the donkeys. Let's go find him. So he's like, okay. So they start wandering around. And then this group of women come up, and they just so happen to know exactly where Samuel lives. And so they begin to walk in that direction. And as they walk in that direction, Samuel just so happens to come out at that moment to meet them on their way into town. And at that moment, God says to Samuel, he's the one, anoint him, he's the king. So they stop there right in the middle of the street, just the three of them, Saul's anointed as the king. Now, now we're back in chapter 10, where we are today. This, in this particular situation, it's now the people's turn to choose their king, okay? And they do it through the casting of lots. Now, kids, I know you might not know what that is, but it's basically like rolling dice. And I don't know if you've ever rolled dice before and tried to predict what numbers you'll roll. It's really hard. It's, rolling dice is just about the most random thing in the world. And so the people get together. They have to choose their king. They decide to do it through casting lots. And first, they have to decide which of the 12 tribes the king is going to come from. So they throw the dice. The tribe of Benjamin is chosen. Now, in the tribe of Benjamin, there are many, 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 many clans. And so they have to decide which of the clans the king will come from. So they roll the dice. Lo and behold, the tribe of the Mitrites is chosen. Hmm. Interesting. 
So they roll the dice again because there's hundreds and hundreds of people in the clan of the Mitrites and they have to choose somebody to be the king. And so they roll the dice again and lo and behold, who is selected? Saul, thank you. <laughs> the one who God had already chosen is chosen by the people. You see that? So they think this is what's so, and, and y'all, if y'all were like ancient people, you'd be like laughing so hard right now. I don't know why you aren't. Um, the people think they're going their way and choosing their own king, but we see that God is the one who is choosing it all. He's choosing the tribe. He's choosing the clan. He's choosing the king. They are, listen to me, they are rejecting God's rule and God is ruling over their process of rejecting his rule. You see that? God is ruling over their process of rejecting his rule. And then get this, they choose the king, the lots fall to Saul, and then they lose him. They don't know where the king is. They lost the king. And so God is the one who points out, hey, yo, he's over here under the bags of luggage. And so this is like ancient Hebrew comedy at its finest. This is hilarious, right? Like they want to go their own way to make a king for themselves, but then they can't even find their own king and they need God to find him for them. I don't know why y'all aren't just cracking up, but this, <laughs> you know. So here's what we see. Here's what we see, okay? Despite letting them go their own way, God is so intertwined in these events to absolutely guarantee his intended purpose. I love what the great theologian Karl Barth says about this. He says, even in accepting Israel's plan, God is mastering it. Even in accepting Israel's plan, God is mastering it. Remember what the plan is. What's their plan? Rejecting God. Rejecting our identity as God's people. That's their plan, and God goes along with it. He lets them go their own way. But here's the thing, he is not abandoning them. He loves them. He's given a promise to them. Somehow, he goes with them even as they run from him. He goes with them even as they run from him. Bart, again, the grace of God is not withdrawn in his apparent concession to their rebellion. It's not withdrawn even in his concession to their rebellion. We see that even in the saddest and darkest of human stories, God is working out his purposes. Even in the midst of rebellious human actions, often working in entirely hidden ways to accomplish his saving work. And this is good news of great comfort, y'all. Do you ever feel like you have messed up your life? Do you ever feel like you have messed up your life? I do. I'm only 44. I still think that's sort of young. I know some of you think that's really old. Um, but I'm only 44. So I hope I've got a lot longer left to live, but already there are, are, I battle against a lot of regrets. I battle against ways, things that I have done or things that others have done to me. Um, I, there's ways that I sometimes can't go to sleep at night because of ways that I feel like I have harmed my kids or messed them up for good. Um, a lot of us carry some profound regrets. A lot of us battle against intense shame. Sometimes I sit with parents, especially parents of adult children, who weep and cry over their own mistakes and wonder if they are irreparable. We carry deep sorrows. We have hurt other people, and other people have hurt you, and some of you have hurt yourself. 
we make a mess of our lives as humans. And that's real, y'all. But here's the good news. If we trust the God of this story, this story, we have hope that even in the darkest chapters, God is at work to carry out his good purposes for you and for the world. It's, it's incredible comfort that God is so sovereign and so powerful, even in the midst of our foolishness. If God were not sovereign, friends, our freedom to go our own way would be the end of us. It would be the end of the world. But God's love wins. God's love always beats human rebellion every single time. There's no contest. His sovereignty means that we can trust that God is at work in hidden ways, often in the silence, even in pain, even when your prayers go unanswered for a really, really long time, even in the shattered dreams of your life, even in the way families are broken up, even, even, even in awful tragedies that life often brings, God is at work and his purposes are always good for his people and for the world. That's the comfort of this text. In this story, just look at this story. It is only because of people's demand for a king that Saul has made the king. And it's only because Saul has made the king that David has eventually made the king. And it's only because David has made the king that he is ever even in the position to look out his window one day and see a woman bathing on a rooftop. And even David, the king after God's own heart, has that same drive in his own soul to live his life apart from God's rule. And so David takes another man's wife and sleeps with her and kills her husband and robs a man's legacy and family and lies about it. What a cataclysmic mess David makes of his life, his family, and his kingdom. And God is sovereign. And he works in and through this cataclysmic foolishness. And when Matthew gives Jesus' genealogy, his family tree, he reminds us that David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was the wife of Uriah, who was Bathsheba, the woman that David so terribly treated, whose husband David had murdered. God brings out of that horrible mess the true king, the Messiah of God. That's the kind of beauty that God brings out of messes. And if you want the most amazing proof, if you want the most amazing way that the mystery of God's human freedom and, his sovereign, and God's sovereignty work together, in this most mysterious of ways, just look at the cross. Because at the cross, God allowed human beings to do what only human beings can do. Not just reject the king, but literally nail God to a cross. Spit in God's face and pin him to wood. This is the murderous intent that God allows to carry out its full course on the cross. And yet in the midst of of this most horrible thing that has ever happened in the history of the world, God is acting to bring about the salvation of the world, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. God's love always wins, beats human rebellion every time displayed in the cross. So I just hope that this will comfort you today, even in the knowledge of the mess we've made of our lives in the world, that your sin and your foolishness and other people's sin and other people's foolishness, none of this means that you are without hope. God can take the worst parts of your story. Uh, he can take the points of deepest pain and unfaithfulness. Um, he can take the places you worry might be unforgivable or insurmountable 
uh, and he works them into his plans for good. You cannot write yourself out of God's script. You cannot be so far away that God is not further still. You cannot be in a pit so deep that God is not deeper still. There is nothing that is beyond God's redemptive reach. He is working all things for good. And you might see some of that good in this life, but one day when we are standing in God's redeemed creation and we see the whole millennia of human rebellion that God has somehow worked in and through to redeem all things, and we will praise the Trinity for his sovereign love. So today, uh, we've seen these two things that are often perceived as not able to be together, human freedom and divine sovereignty. And I didn't try to really solve any major theological debates today. That's not really the point. The Bible doesn't try to do that. The Bible holds things in mystery, and we see it today. And we see a warning here, a warning to you to know yourself, that because of sin, the propensity of all of our hearts to reject what actually makes us free, which is life with God, to know yourself, to say, prone to wander, I know I am, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, to know that about yourself and to return to the Father again and again, returning from the far country. That's what we do every week when we're together. But not only that, to take comfort in the sovereign goodness of God, that he is always working out his purposes for your life for good, for no matter what. And so in sort of a a cosmic way, you can relax. You can relax. You can be free of your fear. You can be free of your anxiety. You can be free of your shame. You can be free of your regret, as hard as that may sound. Because you can be certain that even your greatest foolishness or that of others cannot mess up his good purposes for you. Praise be to God for his sovereignty. Praise be to God for his goodness and love. Praise be to God for Jesus, the proof, the sign, the promise that God is good, that love wins, and that our future is indeed eternal joy. Let's pray. Lord, we do see ourselves in this story. We see our propensity to rebel against you, the king. And we grieve. Um, We grieve for ourselves. We also grieve for those that we love, those who we know that are far from you, that we love, that in their own freedom have walked away from you. And we grieve that, Lord, and we cry out to you for your mercy. We thank you that you love all those who are in the far country. We thank you that you love the one and even leave the 99 to go after them, God. We praise you. We praise you for your sovereignty. We praise you that even in the worst of human chapters of history, the worst of our own stories, when we feel like you can, we can no longer retrieve the plot, thank you that you are the master of our stories. You are the master of our script. And that you are working all things for good and that you will carry out your good purposes for us in the world. And that has been proven to us in Jesus. May we take comfort in this today, especially those of us today who are most brokenhearted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.